Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, from a performative to a collaborative mode, Anne and I are joined by Rufus Burnett, Assistant Professor of Theology at Fordham University, who shares his thoughts about theology, teaching, and the blues. We're here with Dr. Rufus Burnett, Assistant Professor of Theology at Fordham University. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at the university? What's your area of interest? I am a systematician in name, but my area of study is in cultural production and constructive theology. So what I'm very much interested in is how does the products of culture impact how we think about theology, how we think about God, how we think about faith, how we think about justice, truth, mercy, and these kinds of things. And so the project that I think was integral into me coming here was my first book project, which was called Decolonizing Revelation, A Spatial Reading of the Blues, in which I took the risk to say that something about that sonic production known as the blues has some nuggets of truth to tell us about how we think about this idea in theology called revelation, which is, in a nutshell, how God shows up in history. Just that simple. How do we know God when we see God in the experiences that we have as human beings? And I think the blues artists have something to say about that. So that's that book in that nutshell. But larger than that text, um, I'm a native of Mississippi. Um, Grew up there, born and raised um, mostly in South Mississippi. Uh, And I came to theology kind of in a meandering way. I was a bio pre-med major in undergrad. I was going to be a cardiologist and, you know, was very active in the in this Baptist church, First Missionary Baptist Church in Hansboro, little town in uh, Gulfport called Hansboro, and uh, was very formative. It was at church five days a week almost. Both my parents, very, very active in the Baptist church there. And by the time I gra- uh, graduated high school, pastor, you know, had already set a date for my trial sermon, and I was going to be a preacher and probably was going to take over the church uh, at some point uh, after college. I mean, that was that was just what the pastor had in mind for me. But uh, I took a theology class with this uh, priest, uh, Josephite priest named, by the name of Father Philip Linden at Xavier University in New Orleans. My, I think it was my junior year in college, and it totally blew my mind. And I went back to my Baptist pastor in Gulfport, Mississippi, and started telling him about liberation theology. And boy, and so needless to say that those conversations led me to say, well, I think I want to go this theology path. This is a way of of getting to hearts and minds in a way that didn't put me on my my back. I went to this summer program for for pre-med students, and we watched a a cardiology procedure, and I didn't make it through that procedure. <laughs> the patient did make it through the procedure, but I did not. And so I switched majors after that experience and went into theology. The rest is history. That's. Can you tell people who maybe don't know about liberation theology what it is? I mean, liberation theology is a catchphrase now um, that kind of names those theologies that are focused on human beings that find themselves in minoritized, racialized or class differences, uh, issues of colonization, that are trying to think about how they can dislodge themselves 
from the condition that they find themselves in for, from various forms of oppression, whether it be sexism or racism, classism is a name. And they, they think that theology, as it's been handed down through the generations and the biblical text of Hebrew scriptures or the text of, of Christian New Testament, that those kernels are trying to direct us toward freeing ourselves from these conditions. I, gra- I say our because I wrap myself in this, in this group of folks. Uh, so it privileges things like the Exodus story, privileges mm-hmm. things like the gospel narratives, where there's a clear enemy to a group of people that are suffering and are, are, are having a rough go at life. And somehow through divine intervention, God reveals themselves uh, or herself or himself or however you see it to this group. Some through Jesus, or you could think about Hagar and the, and the, and the, in the Hebrew Bible. And she's a slave woman and she, she gets exiled by Abraham and Sarah. She's out in the wilderness and, and she says, El Roy, El Roy, the God who sees me. And so those kind of narratives uh, are integral to liberation theology and and ended up leading me to Fordham. I feel like that last part of the story was a little abbreviated. I'm not sure how. Yeah, it's very abbreviated. It's like 10 years in between that. I can tell you about my time working in dropout recovery in uh, Georgia, where I worked with a program called Leadership Academy and a program uh, there uh, that was dedicated to getting students who had dropped out or stopped out for various numbers of reasons back into the college pipeline. So I spent some time in between my master's at Loyola um, in New Orleans, working in junior college environments where, you know, we're just using the energy of the junior college space to hopefully pipe some of those students, not only back to get their high school degree, but to get them 12 credit hours while they were at it. So I worked there for a while. Then after that, that's when I went to Duquesne and started working on my PhD in theology there in Pittsburgh. Did some time in advising and counseling at Notre Dame before coming here. You talk about the work you did with students who dropped out and stopped out. I love that phrase. That's new to me. It's really good. And I'm wondering, there's a lot of talk at Fordham now about what we can do to make our undergraduate student body more diverse and also what we can do to support those students while they're here. Can yeah. you share with us what you learned from that experience that might apply to our institution? Yes. I'll stick with that, that phrase, stop out, uh, as a starting point. That phrase was kind of coined as a way of talking about students who stop going to high school because of reasons uh, that aren't related to them just not caring. Right? And typically, when we think about dropout students, we think about folks who are engaged in some illicit activity or who are not, not allowing themselves to be disciplined enough to participate in the high school environment. But there are a great number of students who have mental health issues, who have issues with um, becoming parents, who have medical issues that keep them from being within the system. So one of the students we worked with was a survivor of a liver transplant. That particular student, of course, you know, as, as the body, you know, deals with acceptance or rejection, it wasn't a conducive situation for them to be in school five days a week. Um, and so we offered uh, flexible schooling and 
you know, the college schedule, because they would be in classes with other college students, allow them some flexibility. But what, in terms of the, the nuts and bolts of what we learned through that, through that experience of working with stopout students is just understanding that education, and I'm borrowing some, uh, some, some, some of this from Willie James Jennings, who's one, uh, a great thinker about the, this connection of race and education. It has to speak to the soul of a person. And Jennings is good at this because he, he basically says that education should not be proliferating in a kind of a soul death. And these students, the stopout students, as we call them, were being lumped with the dropout students. And so there was a kind of stigma being associated with these students. And as you can imagine, as the demographics that we know that exacerbate race, class, and gender, you know, and most of these students was in uh, inner city of Atlanta, of course, uh, were, people, were students of color, pretty much every last one of them. And they had trouble, there was a certain injury to them because they had done anything morally wrong, they hadn't done anything ethically wrong, and they were being stigmatized as these students that education forgot, so to speak. Right. And I very much feel that that higher education is moving in this direction. But as we move in this direction, the kind of rubrics that are measuring or how we think about measuring diversity and inclusion, as it struggles to get better, it has to find a way to disrupt the ecologies and the logics that uh, necessitate the need for diversity and inclusion in the first place. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Because that's sure. really a rich sentence. And mm -hmm. I want to make sure that we linger over it long enough that people can understand it. So disrupting the ecologies around dis dis diversity and inclusion that necessitate the need for these programs in the first place. What does that mean? So in my own in my own area of study, I'd look at this by problematizing modernity, the world of the West since 1492, in a nutshell. And so if we look at what that world was, how that world was made, we look at triangular trade, we look at certain assumptions about what the indigenous peoples of the Americas are, what the, uh, the indigenous peoples of Africa are, what Europeans are in relationship to those groups of people. And we start to look at those dynamics and how long those dynamics hang around. And so in the, uh, the study of coloniality and decoloniality, which is very near and dear to how I think through the theological imagination, you start to see certain assumptions being made about who is rational, who is not rational, who is irrational, right? And why they're irrational. Is it because of their skin color? Is it because of where they're born in relationship to the equator? We can see this in the studies of Kant, his anthropological work. And Kant, it, it doesn't really have what we would find to be, by today's terms, a robust anthropology of people from below the equator. And so it's not, once you look at these, these data points, it's not unimaginable that these things affect institutions of higher learning. These ways of thinking about making assumptions about who is rational and who is not rational. So the, when I talk about the, the ecology that produces it, I'm talking about colonization and its proliferation. The theory that I use to think through that is coloniality. Coloniality is a theory 
that that basically says that the dynamics that built the colonies, whether they be in Africa, Asia, Australia, the United States, or elsewhere, linger even after said colonies claim independence from their former colonizers. And education, I think, is still trying to delink itself from colonial notions of logic. And so if I break that down even further, what's one thing we could imagine? Well, the division of labor in a colony was racialized, right? So you could expect that certain people of certain races were gonna do certain types of labor. We apply it to the university, we're still struggling with this identity of what Sylvia Winter would call the doctrine of man. And so the male figure, the white European male figure, not white males, this image. So not all white men necessarily fit into this image, but this, there is this European understanding of what it means to be learned, what it means to be rational, what it means to educate. And as we diversify, we're not talking about including people into that model of thinking about what it means to be an educated person, what it means to be a professor, what it means to be a student. What we're talking about is rethinking the framework such that other epistemic voices or other ways of knowing can be used to frame education. So when <laughs> folks are talking about diversity and inclusion, I think that we have to be careful that we're not, that we're looking at the foundations of what built Western education and modern education and looking at the logics of desire that, that drive them. I'm, I'm struggling to articulate this and make a connection to what you're saying, but I'm wondering if you thought about these ideas around assessment and student achievement and rigor and, and, and these kinds of issues. I think it has to do with what we want or desire for a student from our institution to look like when they're done with us. How does that intersect with your understanding of the racialized and colonialized epistemologies that we're living in? It's in a number of ways, but I think this notion of a student being a rugged individualist and how we award merit is what I think undergirds people's nervousness with using an individualized assessment as a rubric of understanding whether or not a student has mastered, which is another term that's problematic, something. Did they learn? Did they... Are they familiar with the knowledge that was set up as the, the learning goal for the course? And I've seen a number, I, I think part of it is that there's other cosmologies or there's other ways of knowing that are more group oriented. Right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about this through a popular cultural lens and I, just, to make it, just to make it a little bit more light. But you, you know, we all know Doc Rivers, the coach. The year they, they did this really good Netflix special on coaches just recently. And on that Netflix special, Doc Rivers talked about his secret repping for that, that year that he won the championship with the Celtics. Uh, he was walking around in the, I guess, in the, the gymnasium and he ran into one of the, the uh, workers there and he, they told him, he was like, you, 
do you know about Ubuntu? And he was like, what's Ubuntu? Ubuntu, what is this? And so, of course, Ubuntu is an African uh, philosophy or way of knowing that is basically, it doesn't really translate into English, but uh, the closest translation was, I am because we are, and since we are, therefore I am. So being an individuated self isn't an, isn't an individualized self that places you in the competition with other selves. And so he used this to, to you know, this principle with the team, everything they did that year, they had to do it together. So one person went to go to a restaurant to get something to eat, they had to buy food for everybody. If one person did one thing, they had to do, they had to do the same thing for everybody. Now students don't think like that, but when do they think like that? When they're cheating together. Right. So could we switch that energy into collaboration? Could we switch that energy into something that actually we would endorse? We would be excited about, we would be proud to see. The caveat I would say there is that I think students want to think like this, but I don't know if we provide enough opportunities for them to think like this. Uh, I used to teach English to speakers of other languages. So it's like my first year of teaching it on the Bronx. And so I gave them the test and they all just start talking to each other, you know, in Spanish. And I'm like, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, you can't, you can't tell him the answer. What are you doing? He's like, mister, I, I know the answer and my friend doesn't know the answer. Why can't I tell him? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Tell him. <laughs> English is not a secret, right? Just tell him. And that's sort of, that. this had to be, this is in 1989. I never forgot this because this, this, you know, this student just punctured my whole sense of what I was doing, right? To, to sort of say, I own this. Right. I think you were hinting at this before, this like ownership model of knowledge mm -hmm. and my students have to earn it mm -hmm. when this kid is just like, well, I don't understand why we can't just do this together. Like language is not an individual. He didn't say all that. Right. But that was his that's the message he was sending, which I found really powerful. And so part of what when I think about it, what I was doing to this group of students was taking something away from them. I'm thinking I'm giving them something, but I'm taking something away. And what I'm taking away is their sense of being a member of a community. And I'm mm -hmm. telling them, if you're going to succeed in this new space, you need to do it alone. Um, and they rejected that. And I'm, I, I guess, I hope that I'm a better teacher because they, they rejected that. That has radical implications. And I think that's the hesitancy for, for most folks. It has radical implications for how we award comprehension, radical implications for how we reward whether or not they attain, as you said, Anne. Right. And when we are asked as faculty members in a different moment to write a letter of recommendation, one of the first questions that we're asked before we write the letter is, this student is in the top 1%, top 10%, top 20%. Of the students I've ever taught in my career of X number of years. <laughs> That's a perfect example of how the design of education is built upon this in, this rugged individual right, that you know perseveres and has thirty five extracurricular activities and is a leader amongst leaders in this in this kind of model. And then when they graduate, they get they don't get rewarded by moving into a more collaborative space, especially if they're in the humanities, because the monograph is the standard achievement 
for scholarship. I do a lot of editing work and it's definitely, not only is it not rewarded, but it's gendered, right? Edited, edited work is seen as feminized labor, right? You're mm -hmm. doing- One of the things that we've been talking about through the life of the podcast is this idea of decentering the teacher, the professor from instruction, mindful of like the disparities of power, trying not to make the class about me and my beliefs and my preferences, trying to create a space that's more open and democratic. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm asking is, is, is that possible? And what would that look like? I struggle with this. Um, and the reason why I struggle with this is because if enough of us agree that the, the ideal image of the professor is racialized, gendered, right, heteronormative and so forth. If, if we agree on at least part, part of that, if we can agree on any of that, right? Then when a person who is a person of color or a BIPOC person or is a woman steps into the role of professor and then looks out into the students and tries these other methods, how is their authority, which is already in many cases, scrutinized authority as they step into that role. Right. You don't look I, like a professor. Right. You don't look like, and then you start doing non-professorial things. And so I do think we're in a, we're, there are signs that are pointing us in the direction that we're going to be okay as we incorporate this and reward it more. If we reward it more, if we if we incorporate it more, and and we get feedback from our students that are are appreciative of this, and it works for them outside of our space, then I think it we can we can continue to see, you know, growth and hopefully it will see change. But I think that that's the right way to think about it. I, we should not be authoritarians in our classroom. It's hard because when you're talking to students about something that is unknown, that, that hasn't been, this is the other side of the struggle. So for instance, I teach Black liberation theology, I teach decolonial theologies, liberation theologies. You got to know a little bit of Marx. You got to know a little bit about the revolutions that happened in the Americas. You got to understand something about what uh, the Aztecs thought of DeSoto. You got to understand some of this stuff. And the difficulty is, is that there just hasn't been enough airtime with these ideas by the time they get to my class. And so if you move into a collaborative model of teaching, does it allow you to get all of the stuff out there? Right? Because you have to, I think you have to teach less and assign less in order to use some of these methods. Because you're um, giving space for people to try out ideas, to talk with each other, right? I mean, you can give the impression that you're covering a ton of material by talking really fast and lecturing for 75 minutes. Right. I mean, right. there's always that tension between broadly and deeply. That's true. Do we do we look at fewer things and wrestle with them for a longer period of time, or do we or or does does it become more of like a survey? And mm -hmm. I trust that you will know what to make of this when we're done. I do tend to to lean towards the deeply part 
but when the ideas are so are so such a shock to the system for some students like i'm trying to teach coloniality to undergrads right and it just takes you feel kind of isolated you know you have other colleagues to talk about this you know folks in other departments are thinking about these things right but it's just not orchestrated in such a way where it is a kind of a mandatory kind of course that people go through, right? Like we just need like a demythologization course, like or, or just like at that intro level, we, when we think about intro, we think about intro into discipline, right? And so we think about the classics and we think about what you need to know to be, to be, to have kind of like a, a, a working knowledge in a particular discipline so you can move to more advanced topics. And I think that move is beneficial to some degree, but moving in towards what I think is being hoped for in these conversations that you all have painstakingly, and I'm so appreciative that you organized them, that we need to think about those frameworks in terms of like what, so let me put it like this. I can be bio biographical here, autobiographical. The first theology course I took was liberation theology because that's the only theology that was taught at Xavier University. Right. Now, why was that? You don't have to be seeking the elective that's going to teach you to question the foundations of the discipline. The discipline is infused with a questioning attitude that's liberationist and anti-racist at its core. Exactly. And it made sense. I went to school at Xavier University in New Orleans. It's one of the only, it's the only, in, the, in North America, it's the only historically black Catholic institution. I mean, they just took the risk. It's like, these folks do not need the classic Western theological framework to think through what it means to be in relationship to the divine. They don't need that. They need liberation theology. And that's what they did. We read Gustavo Gutierrez, and, and then we read some of the Catholic social teaching documents, we did, we had uh, courses in uh, African-American Christianity. When I, when I left Xavier and started looking at patristics, so I was like, what is this? When I went to my master's program, my professors were just like beating me over the head. They're like, what do you mean? I was like, this isn't liberation. This, this is, this, 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 this. I was critical of everything. <laughs> of course, I tempered that down over the years, but this idea of what theology was and what happened when I went to more normative programs, it, it was it was cognitive dissonance pretty much the whole way. If a faculty member came to you and said, okay, I've heard about decolonizing the syllabus, but I don't really know what that means or where to begin, what would you invite them to interrogate? You know, they look at their document, they say, here's how I do the intro to my class. What are some of the questions you'd want them to ask themselves about the text teaching, the methodology? I think one easy starting point is to look at when and where the thinkers that are foundational to your discipline. So look at when they're saying what they're saying, where they're, where they're speaking from geographically and then go and just spin the globe around to someplace else, not in that, on that continent, and look at what those folks in that place are thinking about that phenomena. And I say phenomena because I don't want to inscribe 
categories that may not fit certain phenomena. So for instance, if you look at art, right, in a European context, if you think about, uh, you know, romanticism, you think about the development of art in, in Europe, and you look at what a phenomena that is parallel to art in West Africa, you'll see all of this kind of functionalism in art. Right. Art. Right. So it's very connected to spirituality. It's very connected to and ingrained. And, and I'm not excluding like iconography. Right. I'm not trying to exclude that from a European tradition. Right. I am saying like if you look at if you do that simple step, and then you say what has been written about this phenomena in another part of the world at this particular time, and add that to the syllabus. I've I've had these conversations with faculty members, and then the the, the thing they say next is but I don't know anything about it. I'm not qualified. I couldn't possibly, it would be wrong for me to attempt this. It comes out of a genuine anxiety, I think, a real sense that like I strove for six years, 10 years, 50 years to gain the kind of disciplinary literacy in what I understand to be a rather narrowly defined field, right? When we asked you to introduce yourself, you used like seven very specialized terms that a lot of people probably won't understand, sure. right? And it took you a ton of intellectual labor. So how do you, how do we learn as faculty members to empower ourselves to say, even when I'm venturing outside my specialty in the service of decolonizing the syllabus, it can be okay. I would say one of the first things we can do is say who in your department would be an expert on that or know the experts on that or have a, a, a working knowledge of that world that you feel that is just beyond the pale of your training. And if the answer to that question is no one, then you need to hire someone. And I think this ties back earlier to your idea of the monograph, that we experience our work as individuals. And because we are knowledge workers, it's very uncomfortable to be in this space of, I don't know. So I, I think that there's a lot of pressure there to, to stay in my lane and stay what, I, you know, what I'm comfortable talking about. Um, yeah. And maybe not to explore perhaps with my students. Mm-hmm. I know enough to visit this place, mm-hmm. right? And I can go there with you, but I can't be your guide. But there are other guides I've been able to find. So let's go here together, right? Exactly. You know, so there are reverberations from that, like rethinking what you're fundamentally what you're doing when you're teaching, maybe modeling learning with ah. collaboratively together. Right. Yeah. What does that look like? Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I do think it I mean, I do think that it looks like us as faculty members. And that's why I say it's hard to it's hard to envision this because you know, I want to honor the fact that those who have been, who are marginalized outside of the academy before they get in the academy, then they get in the academy and those marginalization logics are applied uh, sometimes even more ruthlessly than they are outside of the academy. And, and when they get into that coveted space that they worked all their life to get into as a marginalized uh, person, or a person that is being marginalized, knowing their personhood is fully intact. And then we say, 
act like a student. And, and so there's this, there's, this, there's this tension there that I've, I want to honor that. But even, even, I don't know what to do with that. But what I do think what will happen is, is that the students will carry us. Because I don't think they want what we have set up as desirous or as, as ideal in the academy. I think they want something more network, more collaborative. They want something that takes all of some of the anxiety off of them to be a sole performer of knowledge. And that anxiety, I think, has ruined every conference I go to. There's always that one conversation that happens at academic conferences. So you see everybody and it's like, why did we do this again? It happens at least once. Why did we do this? And I think the gap, that question is, it bubbles up from us being islands in the academy. Like because the academy awards us being into our research, double down, we have our students, those students that are in, that are, that want to be with us, right, that are interested, that are doing the work, that the squeaky wheel, they're always knocking down your door. Like we have those students, those are our students, right? But the general Fordham student, right, isn't yet in that circle. And if we can broaden that through these kind of collaborative models so that people feel like I'm borrowing from Jenny's here again, can belong in the space, I do think that that, that that will move us in a direction. Now, practically, I think what that looks like is just very simply finding ways to make space for these types of things to happen outside of the, the space of anxiety, the classroom, right? We need more spaces for interaction that are more, that give us access, the students get access to us but we, we're not in that performative mode. I know when I walk in the classroom, I'm in a performative mode because I'm, I'm nervous about, especially being non-tenured, being early in the career, I'm nervous about students saying, hey, this guy doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. <laughs> Can we get back to what you were saying before about honoring collaboration and decentering <laughs> ourselves as instructors and then putting the burden of that on faculty members who are people of color who are untenured, right? I want to think through that a little bit with you a little bit more because it's really bugging me because it's really tough. I was in grad school a long time ago and the death of the author was a really big idea, right? In literary studies. And there was a ton of absolutely justified outrage from black women writers in particular that just as we have a thriving and rich uh, group of Black women novelists publishing in the 80s, right? We have Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and many, many more. We've got the white theorists at Yale saying, you know what, there is no such thing as a writer, right? Exactly when the idea of writer is expanding to include Black women. And now we're talking about that again in the professorial, 
right? That's exactly the phenomenon that you're describing is, okay, Rufus, welcome. It's so great to have a black man who's working on liberation theology in the theology department. And your project is to pretend like you don't have authority. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a gross insult to your expertise. What helps me is that it's an insult, but to what, right? And if we can start to give language to what it is insulting, what it is embarrassing, what we could be saying when we say the death of the author, the death of the professor is the death of the white male Eurocentric image of a professor, that that idea of what it means to profess could be being injured. But I don't think that's what people are saying when they say that, right? But what is happening is it's a market game. One of my good friends, Carrie Day, uh, wrote a, a critique of neoliberalism, a womanist theological perspective. That is the perspective that comes out of the thought of Alice Walker, right. her idea of, of womanism. And Black women theologians took that idea and ran with it, and they they coined themselves as womanist theologians. Now, Carrie Day is not a womanist theologian. She says she uses womanist theological method, but she sees herself as a, as a social critic and an ethicist. What she, what she shows is that the political economy that dominates in modernity is so pervasive that it can take what seems to be a move to deconstruct the individualism right, the, 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 the rugged individualism of the professor, the rugged individualism of the author, right? And it can, it, it can take that movement, the death of the author, the death of the professor, and make it such that the people holding the power get to be the gatekeepers for how it is deconstructed. If you let me ask you two more questions. I'm game. Okay, so these are, these are lighter ones. One is just uh, about the blues. <laughs> So yeah. can you give us like a favorite blues artist or a playlist or an album or something to listen to? Because I think we all need the blues right now. Yes, indeed. So where uh, would you take us? Oh, man, there's so many places. I know. It's a terrible question. There's so many places. But I'll, I'll go with Bessie Smith. Okay. And why uh, is she your go-to? Because Bessie understood that what had happened to black women and black people was a kind of constant repression of the sensual. Mm. And that's what's happening in our universities. We have no sensuality. And boy, finding sensuality when we're two dimensional. Exactly. How do we live into our bodies, into our senses, into our ways of being in the world that aren't just abstract? Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful answer. I like that answer. No, that's good. The song is Preaching the Blues. The line is this. I may not be able to save your soul, but I sure can tell you how to save your sweet jelly roll. <laughs> Can you tell us about a teacher who was transformative for you? Oh, that's easy. Father Philip J. Linden. 
he introduced me to liberation theology. He was a professor at Xavier University for many, many years. He went back to get his PhD in theology at a Leuven University, Leuven Catholic University of Belgium in his 40s. But he taught with the city of New Orleans. He literally taught with the city. Everything, anything that happened in the city last night was on the table the next day. And he taught liberation theology with the people of, I mean, literally with the people of New Orleans. And his ability to bring in text and context uh, was just so impactful um, because he laid himself bare before that city. And he never allowed himself to be more than what the city was on its worst day. That's the kind of, I think, lasting element is that he was the poor. There was no, he held teenagers in his arms that were bleeding out from gunshot wounds. And so there's no other theology that he could have taught. And I think his example of what it meant to teach and to be available I can tell you how many meals I had at his house. I can tell you about the Eucharist ceremony he did in his house when it was being repaired. It was still just studs after Hurricane Katrina. And he gave the mass with no sheetrock on his walls to visiting students that came in from someplace else that thought they were just coming in to just, you know, go clean up the community. It came in from, I think, Duke University or something like this. And when he gave that mass, it symbolized what liberation theology really is. And I feel like that's what we need to be able to do. We need to be able to be vulnerable enough to teach with no sheetrock on the walls. Wonderful talk. Thanks so much for, for sharing yourself with us. I mean, it's just really, really amazing. Yeah, it's really, really moving to talk to you. I'm so proud that we're colleagues. I mean, I feel really lucky to get to know you a little bit. And really, truly, Rufus, thank you for your time. It's a real gift. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope we can go get something to drink together at some oh. point. <laughs> I love that. That would be great. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, TwiceOverPodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOver1 or email us at TwiceOverPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.